Hello, and welcome back to That Science, a podcast exploring the meaning of science today. This is Is That Science, and I'm your host, Susan O'Flynn. For this episode, I've invited Lucinda Sheriffs back to talk about sci-fi. Whilst a genre about fantasy, I think sci-fi has an important role in portraying how we as a culture respond to scientific development. Of course, this take may seem a bit po-faced. After all, can't we just enjoy a time-bending TARDIS without attaching some deep significance to it? But I think sci-fi texts are archives of our responses to the changing and sometimes frightening world around us and allow us to make sense of the occasional impenetrable concepts within science. I do apologise in advance for the slightly ropey sound quality of this one. It was recorded in a classroom and not a recording studio. So, with that in mind, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lucinda. So, I guess listeners already know you from your episode on science and religion with Amelia, but if you want to go over and give people a refresher of what your name is and your degree... Yeah, totally. Hi, my name is Lucinda and I am currently a master's student at the University of Manchester. I'm studying science and health communication. My background's in astrophysics. I did my bachelor's degree back home in New Zealand in astrophysics. Yeah, shocker. And yeah, now I'm basically just very interested in talking about physics and the history of human relationships surrounding it, basically. And so what do you think drew you specifically to sci-fi as a genre? I think it just really captured my imagination and just the sheer limitless possibility of stories that you can tell with sci-fi because, I mean, it's you quite literally have the whole universe to, mm. to play around yeah. in. Um, and I just love the amount of creativity that can be used. And also, like, the way that it can tell you about the human relationship with technology or with scientific advancement at the time that it was made I find that really interesting it sort of holds a mirror up to yeah and I guess it's kind of integrating scientific ideas into narrative it's a very creative way of looking at science yeah absolutely yeah. It, um, seeing how science can be used in media not in a mm. non-fiction or a journalistic way but just yeah. in a in, for pure entertainment yeah and also do you think your like sciencey background we probably already just talked about this but your sciencey background kind of gives you a different take on a lot of sci-fi i mean do you watch star wars and think maybe that isn't physically possible or something <laughs> uh, like that 100 <laughs> percent, absolutely like you do have to switch off your science brain a lot when you're watching it but you know when hansel is like we're going at light speed i'm like are you sure about that you're really going at light speed i was like i don't i mean i don't know last i checked mate that's not possible <laughs> but you know you just sort of have fun with it um i have a distinct memory of when i was in first year with a bunch of other astronomy students it was a, like a cloudy night at the observatory and so you know obviously can't really do anything if it's cloudy in an observatory Mm. um and so we just watched a whole bunch of episodes of doctor who back to back to back and like listed all of the inaccuracies we could find the world known (laughs) scientifically accurate doctor who yeah (laughs) so i guess before we go into talking about sci-fi and its cultural influences do you want to give a brief background as to sci-fi like how the genre evolved from its inception to nowadays do you want to give that yeah, Briefly. I can definitely try. Um, so a lot of people know that sci-fi was born with uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley in the 19th century. And that was that is the formative sci-fi piece. It is legendary in the genre and in the horror genre as well. And uh, for those who don't know the narrative of Frankenstein, basically Dr. Frankenstein makes a human-like monster and reanimates it using electricity which was a very new technology at the time. That was, you know, their, like, AI was electricity. And then we see it evolve science fiction with the advent of cinema. Uh, That's really where it starts to kick off. 
obviously you've got your Jules Verne and your H.G. Wells with their exploration or you know War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells was a, another piece early 20th century but yeah once cinema starts to kick off with like Fritz Lang's Metropolis which is about a robot run society in the far future and explores the implications of that we really start to see a huge boom in the sci-fi genre and then you start to get things in post-war cinema things like the original The Thing movie and Godzilla those are really good examples of how World War II started to influence the sci-fi genre and then you start to move in the mid-20th century into a lot of things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and those movies about fear of something infiltrating and that was people scared of a Russian invasion. And all the way up to now you get things like Interstellar which talks about fears of climate change, The Last of Us, a fear of a pandemic, we're all very familiar with those. (laughs) So basically what I'm just trying to get at is we can sort of track the societal fears and societal curiosities by looking at how sci-fi has changed over the past 150-200 years. It's really interesting to use from a historical point of view as a way of looking at what was on people's minds at the time it was made. Mm, I think it's really interesting because in that whole history that you've outlined for us, there seems to be a constant bridge that the authors are becoming between the world of the science, which is sometimes seen as quite impenetrable to Mm. the ordinary person, and the language of science and ideas being communicated to the masses through a creative medium, which is sci-fi. That's all that Frankenstein is about. It's exploring this really terrifying novel force which was electricity and looking at its natural conclusions but also looking at the cultural fears that were in science as a whole really Mm -hmm. I think because in that early development of sci-fi you're seeing a lot of pessimism there you're seeing this is terrifying science is really scary this is I'm generalizing here like massively generalizing but you know the end of Frankenstein and the whole narrative arc of Frankenstein is looking at the the, looking at the downsides of science and Mm. Do you see that a lot with early, with early sci-fi? Is there a lot of optimism about science in early sci-fi? Oh, well, I actually was focusing a lot on horror sci-fi then, which mm, is what came to yeah. mind. But I would actually say there is kind of a lot of pessimism sometimes. But I think that's less to do with people just innately hating science. I think it's more people's fear of the unknown and fear of what's new, something they're not used to, obviously. Because mm. obviously, if Frankenstein were to come out today, like an, an animated monster using electricity, people would be like, that's kind of cheesy. That's not. Yeah. That doesn't scare us. Yeah. Anymore. Exactly. That, so we're scared of things like AI and a robot taking mm, over. So like yeah. Westworld is what scares us now. But it's less to do with people innately finding science pessimistic. I think it's more of a we don't know how to deal with this new thing yet, mm. and so we're dealing with it in the way we know how, which is fiction. I mean, War of the Worlds is a really good example of that as well because people had just started to really think about extraterrestrials, and then you've got H.G. Wells you know, mm. writing every week about mm. them coming down from Mars to kill us all, and then you've got a lot of space exploration, pulpy novels coming out mm. in the mid-20th century, and obviously that's the Apollo missions happened then, mm. and a lot of them were about finding hostile extraterrestrials and finding these scary unknown things out in space. So I think it's more just a way of dealing with that kind of unknown fear. But one thing I also noticed is that you mentioned a lot of tropes, a lot of recurring tropes mm-hmm. throughout the development. I mean, Frankenstein, you've got the, the trope of the mad scientist and Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Yeah. Do you think these tropes kind of 
or the fact of these recurring tropes can kind of tell us something broader about society or is that putting too much pressure onto you? And I think they the absolutely story. can because they're always indicative of the society that created them. So I like your example of the mad scientist trope. I think there's like six or seven different sort of archetypes of the scientists in the media. I can't name them all off the top of my mm. head. But I think the two that are really interesting to discuss here are the mad scientist and the impartial rationalist. So the mad scientist is probably one that most people will be familiar with. The archetypical is Dr. Frankenstein. Got the lab coat, yeah, crazy hair. Or like, you know, Dr. Chekhov and stuff yeah, like that. That yeah, kind of yeah. vibe, the crazy hair. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the impartial rationalist is more of that anything should be done in the name of science, morals go out the window mm. kind of scientist. And that's mm. a little bit trickier to pin down in media but equally as interesting and I mentioned the original 1950s version of The Thing because I think that the rationalist is probably best portrayed in that movie the lead scientist on their team is portrayed as very callous and cruel and if you don't know the plot of The Thing it's about a shape-shifting monster which gets unearthed from the ice in Antarctica and it starts to degrade the matter around it and life forms around it so it's all very spooky spooky biology creepiness body horror and the scientist is just like we have to preserve this thing at <laughs> at all um costs at all human life costs if it if you die you die but this needs to survive whereas in the 1980s remake of the thing the scientists are actively fighting it and i think the reason for this big discrepancy between the two portrayals is when you think about what was in the public like the public psyche yeah the collective consciousness of everyone yeah. Surrounding science, the biggest scientific achievement and big parentheses, big air, quotes. big air quotes on this was the developmental, the development of atomic weapons, which created a lot of horror in people and a lot of mistrust towards science, I think. Mm. And so it doesn't surprise me that a lot of scientists were portrayed as quite callous and cruel in the media in the decades mm. following the attack on, attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because, I mean... We all know what happened there. <laughs> yeah. And then when you think about how scientists are now portrayed in the media, they're often shown as the voice of reason, mm. sometimes even quite kind and just, which I'm like, yay, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> as a scientist, yeah. I'm like, please keep doing that. I'm much mm. prefer that one. But it just goes to show like how the public perception has changed mm. surrounding the scientist. And now people like the soldiers and the politicians are often portrayed as the backwards ones, whereas... Mm. I'm going back to that original The Thing. The protagonists of that movie were soldiers and politicians. And in post-World War II, they were the people who would be venerated. Yeah. Good reason. I I think also interesting as well, this just popped into my head, Mm. but machinery can facilitate a really unjust society. And I think that's really interesting to think about in terms of to what extent science and technology modify society beyond our wildest imagination. That's a really interesting thing to think think about as well. That's being explored a lot right now, I think, with Black Mirror, for instance. But that's been a fair for a long time in Metropolis by Fritz Lang which I think was like 1932 that is the plot of the movie like mm. society is run by robots and it's yeah. used to make the rich richer and I guess obviously braving well and then I guess we've also got the idea of kind of machines working against humans the idea that we've given machines such control I, this is becoming increasingly dominant in sci-fi narratives now you have machines taking over the lives of humans. I mean, yeah. we just talked about Black Mirror, but there's that one episode. You're ranked in terms of your likability oh, within God. a society. Yeah, Nose dive. Machines taking over the experience and altering human experience as well. Um, yeah. But then I guess that's going to be explored more, especially now with the advent of AI. Yeah, I think that's going to be a major mm. narrative that we're yeah. going to see a lot more of moving forward. And now I kind of want to move on to talking more about the potential of sci-fi mm-hmm. as a genre that can explore 
culture anxieties? Do you think it has a unique potential to do this? I do really think that sci-fi creates a unique like sandbox that you can play in mm. with a lot, so many different ideas that can be explored because sci-fi isn't just one thing. It's not just Star Wars or Star yeah. Trek. It's got so many different subgenres. So if you want to explore cultural anxieties, like sci-fi thrillers, horrors, and those kind of suspenseful dramas are a really good way to do so. Things, you know, like The Last of Us yeah. is one really good exploration of the fear of what a complete societal collapse in the advent of pan- in the wake of a pandemic mm. would look like. Without science fiction, without that sort of added layer of realism and recognisability of the scientists, the way a pandemic is handled, mm. I'm just using The Last of Us mm. as an example yeah. here, but without that sort of added layer of realism, it doesn't quite hit yeah, the same points that it would have otherwise. It's not quite as scary mm. and not quite as like chilling. I mean, we were talking earlier about pessimism in sci-fi. What are the kind of optimistic narrative arcs that you I have come across? I really love like more optimistic sci-fi as well because I feel like a lot of it can end up a little mm. bit doom and gloom and dystopia, and also foster a lot of anxiety. Anxiety, yeah, totally in the reader. But I think in terms of the hopeful ones, I think I love Arrival. The movie pointed to come out 2015, I oh think. My God, yeah, it was ages ago. But yeah. Oh my God. That one is Amazing. beautiful, yeah. and it's, it really just shows like a hopeful way that humans could connect with an extraterrestrial life form. Spoiler mm. alert, I guess. We could have done a spoiler alert at we the could, start. We should have. Should have. It, it has like sort of the hopeful alien interaction, mm. which is not what you get a lot of the time. It's, yeah. A lot of the time it's invasions and you know yeah. cows flying up in a beam towards the flying saucer. So I thought that was really beautiful. And another one that I really like is a lot of her books are sci-fi her name's Emily St. John Mandel she also she deals with a lot of themes like pandemics oh gosh and virtual reality and whether or not the universe is real and what that would mean if we even knew that and when you sort of boil down her writing and you strip all of that away at the core of it is still just the human experience and whether or not humanity is worth saving really and she puts humanity in these extreme circumstances to sort of push people to their limits and see the good that comes out Mm. And I think that's just a really unique way of taking the genre to its limits. Yeah, I think like common between those two texts is that you're talking about very hopeful outlook for humanity, and mm. that it's humans using their own intelligence to save themselves. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I know what you mean. And I and do we as the um, the Martian is mm, kind of a yeah. good example of that. Yeah. It's just human brilliance being yeah. used in a. Also, I think something you talked about yesterday when we spoke is we're kind of taken out of our world and out of our prejudices and out of our presupposed realities but in some of those narrative arcs western prejudices are still maintained one thing you brought up was colonialist attitudes so that's actually something that's really shocked me because i've been trying to read a lot more early sci-fi not only just for this podcast but in general because you know education why not yeah and like i'm like how are you still colonialists in space you're in space can we just Put that all aside for a minute. Basically, like a lot of these extraterrestrial exploration ones, humans go off to another planet and, you know, somebody's already living there. It's very... You feel quite icky reading it because it's all like, these savages, we're going to take their land and their resources and these are the people portrayed as the good guys. And I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, what is happening here? Why are we still doing this? Like, it was written in the 30s. But yeah. like, wh- why, why is this necessary? It's like, you can, yeah. you've invented entirely different yeah, rules right. for physics, but somehow you can't issue your prejudices. That's yeah. insane. We're on another planet, but you're still racist. Like, I don't get it. Just why? Um, yeah. So there's been a... There's a bit of improvement since mm, then, which yeah. is, you know, good. But, yeah, and yeah. I guess that's kind of, but I guess that's also who's controlling those narratives and yeah. who's allowed to have those narratives. And which, who's it written for? Like, yeah, who's exactly. It to, you know, exactly. Who and are like, we leaving out? Yeah, I'd mentioned it as well, but I, one thing that I found particularly interesting was learning about Afrofuturism. You know, it can be a genre of sci-fi through which 
the black experience is kind of imagined outside. But it weren't for the past 500 years. Exactly. Hello, just a quick note from Editing Susan here. I want to expand on what I meant by Afrofuturism here because I don't think I did it justice in the interview. But the term Afrofuturism, this is taken from the tape webpage on Afrofuturism, describes how the term has its origins in African-American science fiction. Today, it is generally used to refer to literature, music and visual art that explores the African-American experience and in particular the role of slavery in that experience. They list science fiction writers such as Octavia Butler and Samuel R. Delaney, but more obviously are the Black Panther films. The term Afrofuturism was coined by Mark Derry in his essay Black to the Future, interviews with Samuel R. Delaney, Greg Tate and Trisha Rose. In this essay, he discusses Afrofuturism in these terms, quote, speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture and more generally African-American signification might, for want of a better term, be called Afrofuturism. And I think the concept of Afrofuturism is such an interesting one to look at because, as Derry says in his essay, the sublegitimate status of science fiction as a pulp genre in Western literature mirrors the subaltern position to which blacks have been relegated throughout history. So, in this way, it's being used as a mouthpiece to communicate certain ideas about the black experience. Now, of course, I again veer into the slightly po-faced take on things, but I also think that the visuals for Afrofuturism are absolutely gorgeous and breathtaking. Anyway, back to the episode. So in that, in that way, do you think it's kind of a unique genre to explore not only cultural anxieties? I think that actually comes back around to that hope that I was talking about. Yeah. Because it can, sci-fi can really be used to explore good futures mm, mm. and the ways in which humanity can prevail. And yeah, it can provide us with a lot of hope if we are willing to try. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, you know, a way for exploring the impact or maybe logical conclusions of scientific discoveries today maybe mm-hmm. but, but without think... limit without the limitations of reality yeah really. exactly that, yeah that's I mean that is exactly what I was getting at basically so I guess that kind of brings us up to the modern day do you think obviously this is a an obvious question but do you what do you think modern sci-fi has to offer us today well like it has in the past I think it's a very effective tool for examining our own cultural anxieties I also think just in like a kind of fun switch off your brain entertainment media Mm. kind of thing i love star wars i love flying (laughs) through space i just talked about her sitting down and watching several episodes of doctor who back to back Mm. i love doing that and i think it's nice to use a bit of escapism every Mm. now and then especially with the state of the world yeah why wouldn't you exactly there's nothing wrong with a little bit of escapism yeah exactly and And then i also think it's a really powerful way for reimagining a hopeful future for humanity Mm. because i like to do that I like yeah. to think about oh how would we terraform Mars yeah <laughs> <You know? exactly>. yeah <laughs> things like that as an aside how accurate is the Martian can oh, I ask you it is actually very accurate really yeah it's great do you know how Andy we wrote it he consulted like scientists oh, every so step of the way consultations yeah oh, oh yeah so it's actually it's really good really yeah so that's no. one thing that you don't switch your brain off and watch no you that was like, wow. I am I am Taking notes. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, that one's really good. Interstellar's all right. It's a bit, like, far-fetched, but the black hole looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, the worst is definitely Armageddon. That's just a joke. I have never seen that. Don't. Is it? Just keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you what your favourite sci-fi, sci-fi movies are? Or oh. media? Yeah, or texts. Sci-fi tech, let's do that. Text. Yeah, me. sure. Okay, well, I grew up watching Doctor Who, so that definitely have a soft spot for Doctor mm. Who. 
It's definitely more sci-fi fantasy, I think, that one. <laughs> We're playing fast and loose with the science and that, mm. but it's fun anyways. I love Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. It's an amazing book. Everyone go read it. Also her book, Sea of Tranquility, is also beautiful. Movie-wise, I really like that new Jordan Peele one. Nope. Mm. That was great. So I guess for me, I, I really love... Um, we were talking about it yesterday, but I really love like 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, oh my gosh, but yeah. solely because of like... No, I'm adding that to my list as well, retroactively. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because of just the general sense of unease throughout the entire film. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's just the general sense of unease. Just like utter dread. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Really conscious. I don't really know what it is. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about because um, this is another way in which sci-fi is such a unique genre for exploring this thing called Lovecraftian horror. So it's basically mm-hmm. a fear of the complete unknown. So I would, I always say the best example of it is that scene. Okay, spoilers for 2001 A Space Odyssey, a movie that's been out for like 60 years. If you haven't seen, seen it already. Yeah, it's almost like out, out of copyright at this point. It's fine. Um, so there's a scene where a bunch of astronauts go to the moon. I know, very topical for when it came out. Um, and they unearth this massive, like, 12-foot-tall monolith, which is very clearly, like, inorganic. Like, it's been manufactured by something. Not humans, because they found it on the moon in the 1960s. And there's this, like, three-minute-long shot where it's just the camera on this monolith Aww. as the aliens... Yeah, <laughs> with this, like, awe in the background. <laughs> and the astronauts are all walking towards it, looking utterly terrified. Because who built that? Why is it there? What do they want? Are they they're intelligent clearly but like what's their intention and do they know that human life is on earth are they watching us now it's just that complete and utter fear and you don't even know what you're afraid of and I think that sci-fi does that so well because Mm. what's more vast and unknown than outer space yeah I think that's probably a good place to end on just utter fear maybe end on an optimistic note what do you think we can learn from sci-fi I think we can learn about what we're capable of whether that's in a positive or negative way neutral Mm. and I think we can like use it to sort of expand our creative abilities Mm. and tell even more fantastical incredible stories Mm. because it's an almost limitless genre there's so much that can be done with it there's so much fun to be had there's so much to be discussed I really really could go on about this for hours yeah (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for coming on that is all right thank you for having me back again yes it's been wonderful definitely Thank you so much to Lucinda for coming back to talk to me. I had such a good time talking to her and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, any of the concepts that we talked about today will be in the show's notes. So make sure you head to those if any of them sounded interesting to you. And make sure to tune in next week for Amelia's episode, Is That Science? About clinical trials. And until next time.